Welcome, everybody. My name is Ben. If you're visiting today, a warm welcome to you. I'm glad you could come and join us. We have been in a long series on the gospel according to Mark, and today will be no different. Um, before we get into it, I want to talk a little bit about Peter. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the miracle of faith. We just talked uh, in, this, in this, one of the songs we just sang, talking about how we receive what we do from God by grace alone. That's something that he does. But I want to ask a question to us, which I think will be very familiar, because it raises a tension that I suspect all of us uh, have to navigate in our life. When I say the word Jesus, what kinds of impressions come to your mind? When I say Jesus, what sort of thoughts, feelings, emotions, what sort of pops for you? Now hang on to that for a second. Just consider that for a moment. And now if I were to, if I were to take a survey, or let's say I set up 10 people and you each described what you thought, what your impressions were, how likely do you think it would be that all 10 are the same? Probably not very likely. Uh, Daniel mentioned, Pastor Daniel mentioned right before his prayer that it's, it, it, on this day, Mother's Day, we have some tension often because the word mom raises a lot of different sorts of feelings and thoughts for us. And so some are moms, and that maybe was a very positive or very difficult experience. Others hope to be moms and can't be for one reason or another. It's very painful. We were all raised by a mom or a guardian of some kind, some nurturing, loving, humble moms, others the opposite of that difficult, maybe cruel or harsh. You think about all of the different ways that we consider what a mom is. It's very different. Now, when we think about Jesus, there's something we often talk about as Christians, and that is we have to believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is, is crucial to your entire life. But what if 10 people all claim to believe in Jesus and they all have a very different impression of who Jesus is. If our belief is super important, and yet it's very different person to person, it raises for us a really interesting and difficult question that I suspect we either don't want to think about often, or we move quickly past, or we try to ease that tension in various ways. Like, well, this one person out of those 10 is the right one, and then the other nine have to become like that one or something like that. And yet, even through your entire life, if you've lived with Jesus for some time, I suspect you would look back on last year, five years back, 10 years back, and say, man, what I knew about Jesus, what I believed about him back then, it's changed. So what was it then? Who was I believing in? Okay? These are some really important questions. Well... Who do you think Jesus is? I've said this many times. That is the most crucial question of your life. Who do you say Jesus is? It's a question about how you see Jesus. Somebody asks you, well, who do you say Jesus is? You're going to respond with how you see him. This is how I see Jesus. Jesus. 
And we learn in the Bible that that, that is really important. Uh, John will say, this is eternal life, that you know the Father and the one whom he sent. We, we think eternal life is a pretty important thing. And if it's bound to what you know about the Father and, and the Son, Jesus, that's pretty crucial, you know. So what we think about Jesus really matters. What's the right things to think? When's it enough? What do we do? You might say, well, this is a great moment, Pastor. I'm stoked right now because I think I know where you're going here. And I have, I, I got saved. I got saved. I've already been saved. I didn't used to know Jesus back in the, in the old days. I know him now. He gave me the miracle of faith on the day of my conversion. It was fantastic. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. That day, I saw the light. There was no more darkness, there was no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Now I'm so happy. There's no more sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I have seen the light. It's a very, very common way that we sort of understand that salvation. But I want to invite you to consider the main characters in the passage that we're going to read this morning, and that's going to be the disciples, it's going to be a blind man, and then there's going to be a special focus on Peter. We're in Mark 8 again. You can start to turn there if you want, but before we get to Mark 8, I want to go broader New Testament because Mark will zero in on Peter. And I want to ask that same question of Peter. When did Peter see the light? When was it that Peter stepped into that glorious light when he finally got it, when he finally believed in the real Jesus? There's a bunch of different moments here, and they're each going to appeal to different ones of you based on how you've been taught about conversion. So here's Peter. He's a fisherman. He's rolling through an average, normal Jewish life, and in comes Jesus and says, follow me. And Peter says, whoa, that's a major calling. Uh, in Luke chapter 5, we see this, this man, Simon, later to be called Peter, he drops to his knees. He recognizes something in Jesus. He drops to his knees and he says, depart from me, Jesus. Just get away from me. Why? Because I'm a sinful man. Oh, Lord, I am a sinful man. There's Peter. Okay, Peter recognizes his sin. He recognizes the glory or the goodness of Jesus. He owns it. He repents. He's on his knees. He's bowing correctly. He believes that Jesus is major. Was this the moment where he was converted? Did he see the light? He certainly changed his entire life and started following Jesus, didn't he? But then we'll get to this passage today, and it will sound like the first moment that Peter actually, actually gets who Jesus is. Jesus will say to him, who do you say I am? And he'll say, you're the Christos. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Eight chapters 
That's a long bit of time in Mark. Peter's been walking the walk, talking the talk, and then pow, today maybe is the time where Peter is converted because he finally sees that Jesus is the Christ. And yet, right afterward, Jesus will tell him to be quiet about that. Huh, I wonder why. Maybe it was actually not today. Maybe it was the time where Peter's been following Jesus. He believes in him. He's trusting him. And yet, what he sees and understands about Jesus still allows for him to totally deny Christ three times right before the cross. He denies Christ. Jesus had said, you will. And then the rooster crows, and on the third rooster crowing, Jesus flashes a glance over at Peter. They lock eyes, and Peter breaks down. He sees his sin, and he doesn't say, whatever, Jesus, I am who I am. No, the passage says that he bitterly wept. Whatever he felt prior to that moment about a conviction of sin, whatever light he had seen, it was much bigger then. He weeps bitterly. He can't believe that he's done this. But what's interesting here is there's been no pouring out of the Spirit on him yet. He hasn't even said that he loves Jesus. Interesting. After the resurrection, Jesus meets with him. And we remember that famous moment where Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Just kind of imagine him waving his hand across the disciples gathered there. Do you love me? You know I do, says Peter, absolutely. Simon, do you love me? I do. You know I do. Do you love me? Three times he asks him. Peter says, yes, I do. Now, before he believed right facts, he followed him. He changed his life for him. He recognized him as the Christ, and yet, until this moment, we don't see that love. Maybe this is the moment where he sees the light and he falls in love with the Savior. Prior to that, we don't see him actually doing that. Maybe it's love. Right, that's right, Pastor. It's got to be that moment because that's where a relationship starts and it's all about relationship. But as I mentioned, he didn't even have the Holy Spirit at this point. Perhaps Peter's conversion was Pentecost when finally the Holy Spirit was poured out on him. We're given a picture of Christianity that says we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and up until that moment, Peter had not been. Whatever he knew, whatever he believed, whatever he followed, even however much he loved, it wasn't until Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came on him. When did Peter see the light? I would love to get a, an iced coffee with Peter and sit on the beach and just ask him that question. Peter, Peter, just talk to me about your experience with Jesus. When was it that you were totally in? When was it you were saved? We don't get to have that iced coffee right now. We have to wait patiently for that day. I'm confident that it will come. And I think the heavenly beaches will be even better than Oregon's beaches. That's hard to beat. But we do have the scriptures, so I want to turn there now. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. We can get a glimpse into Peter's heart and soul. We can get a glimpse into what Jesus is doing here. We're going to see the most unusual miracle. Look carefully. This is a short text, but this is a weird miracle. 
And then Jesus takes his disciples to the most interesting geographic location you can imagine to say what he says to them. This is a really cool passage. This one coupled with what we'll, what we'll do next week. These form uh, what, what many call the Markin hinge. This is the central pinnacle focus of the whole gospel of Mark, what happens in these passages. And after this, the whole story, the pace, the focus, everything in Mark will change. But let's pick it up in chapter 8, verse 22. Then they, the disciples, and Jesus, they come to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to Jesus, and they asked him to touch him. Now Jesus took the blind man by the hand, and he brought him outside of the village. And then he spit on his eyes. There it is. He placed his hands on his eyes, and he asked, Do you see anything? And then regaining his sight, the blind man said, I see people, but they look like trees moving around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. My paraphrase that is, be quiet. All right? Don't even go into the village. Now in verse 27. Then, after this healing miracle, it is odd, isn't it? What's the two stages about? He heals them halvesies, and then, and then a full? What's going on there? Was Jesus not flexing his divine healing muscles strong enough on the first round? We've got to ask that question. Then we go to verse 27. After this, Jesus and the disciples, they went into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way there, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others, they say you're one of the prophets. And so he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christos. You're the Christ. It's the Greek equivalent to the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And then Jesus, right after Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Jesus says, be quiet about that. Then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Isn't that odd? Seems like the exact opposite of what they should do, <laughs> right? Especially after they rightly recognize him as the Messiah. Is Jesus the Messiah? He's the Messiah, you know? I would expect him to say, awesome, good, tell everybody. He says, he warns them, don't tell anybody. Whew, okay. This is an interesting Caesarea Philippi, what's going on there? And then why keep quiet about all this stuff? I want to say right up front that this story of the healing is an acted parable. He is acting out a teaching. Not unlike uh, uh, Ezekiel. Remember the great prophet Ezekiel? He did all these sign acts. He's trying to deliver a message from God and so he lays on his side for a bunch of times in, the, in a bunch of days in the middle of the town and 
eats food off of fires made of dung, and it's weird, you know? He's doing all this symbolic stuff to make a point, to say something. Uh, a scholar, a New Testament scholar named Morna Hooker says, this is an acted parable of the miracle of faith. It's an acted parable of the miracle of faith. He's acting out what the miracle of faith looks like, and I think she's onto something there. Look, Jesus can obviously heal people without saliva. We've seen that happen already. He can heal you if you're not even in the same town that he's in. We've already seen him do that in Mark. He's doing a one-act play. He's showing us something through what he does. And he's telling a certain and very powerful story in just a few lines. If you've been following in the Gospel of Mark, we've been watching from the very beginning this dull disciple motif. They're walking with Jesus, they're talking with Jesus, and they are not getting him. Mark is probably the most negative of all the four gospel writers in his assessment of the disciples. And he consistently puts before us a picture of disciples who are just dense. You remember last week, Jesus feeds people miraculously, and they say, where are we going to get food? And then he feeds people miraculously, and they say, Gosh, where are we going to get food? And then they're out of food, and Jesus says, seriously, guys, are you not paying attention? There's a dull disciple motif through the whole front end. And last week, we saw how Jesus brings the heat toward that sort of spiritual blindness, if you will, spiritual sleepiness. He says, don't your ears work? Don't your eyes function? Come on, what's going on? What are you paying attention to? Because it certainly isn't me. And then just when we, the readers, are about to scream, good grief, why won't they get it? They're so dense. Then this pivotal scene unfolds right right here. If we were able to just sort of sit and read all those chapters together, you would, we're kind of going piece by piece through the sermon this way. But if you could just read it from chapter 1 all the way up to the middle of chapter 8, you'd see this sort of tension growing. And then as you get to that moment, we're all frustrated with them. Like, seriously, guys, it takes three miraculous lunch healing, or feedings before you get it? And then this unfolds. This moment we just read. What's Mark's point? I think his point is these disciples of his, they don't see so well. They don't see very well right now. But because they're with Jesus, the only one who can give them that sight, gradually, in stages, they will see clearly. So this is an acted parable that gives us hope. As disciples of Jesus, we look at this and we say, huh, I think Mark is trying to suggest something that could be very beneficial for me. Something that suggests there's a lot to learn and it doesn't always just come in one fleeting moment, as though now you see the light, there's no more darkness, there's no more night, there's no more sorrow. I see the light perfectly. You see, it doesn't seem to be that way, certainly with the disciples, and here comes an actual physical blind man that Jesus heals in stages to make a point. I think Mark is using that to say the progression from zero vision to great vision is impossible without Jesus. And it's a slow process. It's gradual. At the very least, it can be that way. 
We see something a little bit different with Paul's conversion, don't we? It's much more just like, pow, in your face, Jesus is there. It's just weird and instant and amazing. With Peter, it's so much different. And the disciples, it's a different sort of progression. And I would say, don't you feel that way often, blinded, if we're going to be honest? One of the things that's difficult about believing that you're supposed to see it all in the moment you're saved is that you don't. And then we generally just keep quiet about all of the doubts and questions and confusions we have because I'm supposed to have gotten all this. But if you're really honest, deep down inside, don't you feel that way often? Like you really do believe in God, but making sense of who he really is and what he's really about is difficult. Just when you think you figure something out or learn it, the, the reality of this world sort of hits you and it becomes more blurry downright painful at times. Consider this, and then we're going to go back to the text, and I'm going to take you right to Caesarea Philippi. But before I do, I'd say this about my own life. Allie and I, uh, we got married about 10 years ago. We married on 7707. And while we were dating, it's, it's easy to remember, the day of completion for us. And uh, we had talked while we were dating about having children. We hoped to have children. That was something we desired. And so when she became pregnant, you can imagine how excited we were. I mean, this was fantastic news. At that point in our life, we were both saved Christians. We had both seen the light. We'd seen the light of Jesus. If you would have said to me, Ben, who do you say that Jesus is all the way back then? How do you see him? I would have given you a picture of a sovereign God, one who's truly in control, one who always wants to benefit and strengthen his children. And as it relates to childbearing, I would have said this is a God who loves life, who commands his first human beings to join with him in the process of reproducing life, be fruitful, and multiply. That is not the words of a God who likes death and destruction. That's the words of a God who loves life and the flourishing and the furthering of more and more life. So I would have said those kinds of things to you. So when Allie became pregnant, man, that fit perfectly into how we saw Jesus and God and so forth until about a month into the pregnancy and then the baby was dead. Oh. I think the disciples saw Jesus as somebody who provides, somebody who can provide, somebody who's able to provide. They had reason to believe that that was true. And yet when they were faced in that moment, just last week in the text we looked at, of not having bread, it anchored into their own experience of life in a different way. And then the, what they knew about Jesus still wasn't quite fleshed out at that moment. And so they what? They were fearful. They were anxious. What are we going to do? Boy, you can imagine how Allie and I felt at that moment. Happy words like crib or nursery or boy or girl were all replaced with one word, miscarriage. What did we miss? Out of that list of things we knew to be true about God, which one was wrong? Was he actually not in control? Was Satan actually more powerful than God sometimes? 
Was he not actually a God who loved life as much as I thought? So what did Ali and I do in that moment and in the days that followed? We gripped our knuckles together and prayed. And we prayed, Jesus, please, we know you love life. We know you give life. You desire life. We trust that you will bring this baby to life. Please. Healthy and safe, please. And guess what? We prayed, we focused our attention, and she became pregnant again. And this time it was different. We had learned something about Jesus. We had grown in our understanding of him. The first month passed. We were really nervous during that first month. We're through the first month. That was the traumatizing month. And so we gripped our hands together, white knuckle prayers, day after day. Second month passed. We were still a little traumatized from our first experience, but that's when the triumphalism kicked in. I feel anxious. I feel nervous. I'm not quite sure. So he'll do it. He has the power. I believe it. I believe it. Just believe he's able to do it and he'll do it for you. Please, God, we know you. Ever since we got saved, we have known you. We've been able to see it. Please. And then by the time we were into the third month and it was past, she's entering into the second trimester. Now, when you enter into the second trimester, they say you can feel a lot more secure that the baby is going to make it to full term. Guess how we felt? We were so stoked. Okay, we made it through the second trimester. And then a couple of days passed. And then that heart-wrenching, familiar pain hit again. And it stung deep, and then the blood. Lots of blood. And that baby died as well. Oh man, what were we missing? How does this make sense? I thought, God, what, my, what I saw about this, what do I do? What was it that we couldn't see? We'd seen the light, there's supposed to be no more darkness, no more night, no more sorrow inside. Imagine how Peter must have felt at each one of those junctures that we just looked at a couple minutes ago, each of those pivotal moments, places where he was challenged to recognize his own blindness in relationship to Jesus, his own spiritual haziness in who God was. What if it can take an entire lifetime to develop eyes that truly see? How would that change our lives together in a community if we started to really own the biblical narrative stronger and we actually really did see that the Bible gives us this picture of a very slow, difficult, and oftentimes suffering-ridden process of eradicating idolatry from our hearts and minds so that we can truly see Jesus for real. I think we might be a lot more patient with one another. Sometimes I think to myself wrongly, that person's a Christian, how could they? You know, well, was Peter a Christian? I think so. <laughs> He's given everything up, he's following Jesus. And yet over and over and over and over he fails Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He's kind. He's strong with him, 
He's intense with him. Jesus isn't like, gosh, how can I just make Peter feel great? He doesn't seem to do that, and yet he loves him. And he's, and he's forgiving, and he picks him up. I think we'd be a lot more forgiving with one another. I think we would learn to help each other much more. And I think we would all start to get a little bit more honest about our own American idolatry. If you remember from last week, we said this text here in Mark, but also the Bible as a whole, leads to the impression that spiritual blindness and deafness comes from idolatry, attaching your heart to something other than God. We prefer to think of the salvation moment as one that eradicates idolatry from my life, and so now all I have left to do is just tweak some behavior stuff. Certainly I don't worship other gods, we say to ourselves. I worship Jesus. That's what Allie and I would have said in that moment. We don't worship other gods. We worship Jesus. And yet he became like a distant, foreign, hazy figure to us, like a man who looked more like a fuzzy tree than a loving, caring, present God who loves life. We had to learn something. We're still learning something. I would say we're learning something every single day. Allie and I and you and me, the disciples, we cannot see Jesus so often because of our own idolatry. Our hearts have been conditioned to cling to something, to cling to something or someone for ultimate security that is not God. Our hearts have been conditioned that way as good Americans. And so, who is Jesus to the idolatrous American? Jesus is a nice God who helps us get what we want more than him. That's how we have to answer the question. Who is Jesus to you? If we're gonna be honest, if we're gonna say, I do have an idolatry problem, oftentimes we actually think of Jesus as a super-powered helper that will help us get what we want for ultimate security. Allie and I will feel more secure in our identity and who we are when our healthy family comes to fruition. So who is God? I worship God. Oh yeah, absolutely. I believe in Jesus. He's the guy who helps me get what I really need. And there's Jesus saying, you still have it backwards. Don't you see? Don't you hear? You have turned that into an idol. You think that ultimate security comes from that and it doesn't. This is the nature of false gods, isn't it? You don't actually carve out a wooden idol and, and, and love it. You don't, you know, you do what you need to do to the false god so you can get what you want. Nobody's that excited about a little piece of metal and then, oh, I just so love it. No, it's like, I love what you can do for me. And that's where my heart lies, here, and what I need, what I think I need, what I think I want. Is Jesus a God who is just here to help us get something we really love, something we love more? He takes him up to Caesarea Philippi. For so long, I just thought, this is just a town, whatever. It's a town in the Middle East somewhere. I just got the great blessing of being able to go to Israel, and I got to go to Caesarea Philippi. 
When I sat there, it totally changed everything about this passage. Colleen, could you put the first picture up? There's two photos here of Caesarea Philippi. That big cave in the middle on the right-hand photo is the remnant, if you will. There's a foundation that comes out from it. That's the remnant of a, of a temple that used to be there for the god Pan. Next to it, see these little cutouts carved right in the stone? Each of these had different small temples protruding off of them. Caesarea Philippi was outside of the ancient borders of Israel. It's at the northernmost tip of the country. Just a few miles past that cliff is Syria, okay? So Jesus takes his disciples out of the familiar land up into a place that has been created for worshiping false gods. Can you go to the next slide? Here's an artist's rendition. See the, see the far left temple there? That's that cave. That was the temple to the god Pan. And then there's another one after that was destroyed. One was put up for Zeus. And then all these other ones, right about where the, the one with the little arch and the other four columns, that was for a god of the goats. There's a bunch of little goat pens still there and whatever. So Jesus brings his disciples up to this place, and you can just imagine him sitting down there at the bottom of the stairs, if you will. I, I think his arms were open like this, okay? And all behind him is this litany of false gods, hundreds of people there bowing, sacrificing, worshiping, doing all their stuff. And in this context, Jesus says to them, who do you say I am? You can almost read between the lines there to hear him saying, do you think I'm like one of these? Do you think that I'm like one of these? And maybe even further between the lines, because I'm not. Who do you say that I am? Go back to the, go to the next slide, please, Colleen. And here's the text again. This is what we've already read. And notice how I've tried to set them side by side. Mark has built this passage as a mirror. And so the parable act is on the left, and then the teaching is on the right. Notice, they come to Bethsaida, they bring a man, he's setting the scene in verse 22, and then later in 27, there's the scene. Then he's saying, people will have a partial sight. Even when Jesus uh, impacts the blind man, it's Jesus who's healing him, isn't it? So it's not like the blind man got half healed by something bad and then half healed by Jesus. No, Jesus half healed him. The blind man is halfway healed. He gets partial sight. Mark wants to parallel that with the idea on the way to Caesarea Philippi. He asks, who do they say I am? They say, John the Baptist, that's kind of right. Elijah, that's kind of right. One of the prophets, is Jesus one of the prophets? Yeah, kind of. But not really, that's not quite it, <laughs> you know? You see it, but you don't see it clearly. And then, just as he makes the man fully uh, sight restored, then we have this in 29, where, where Peter seems to see more clearly. You are the Christ. Mark used that language one other time so far in the gospel. That was in verse 1-1. Until then, 
We haven't seen the disciples thinking of Jesus that way at all until this moment. What is Mark telling us? Well, he's telling us that they are making some progress. We were introduced to the fact that Jesus was the Christ on the first verse, and then we were introduced to these disciples who just don't get it. Now they seem to be getting it. That's a good thing. So we're a little bit excited for him. In the miracle, he intentionally demonstrates a gradual change from no sight to good sight. By coupling the story in the same way, I think Mark is suggesting to us the miracle of faith works just like you see it working in these disciples. We asked up front, is this the moment that Peter actually changed? We might say, but boy, it sure does look like it. After all, he says he truly believes that Jesus is the, is the Christ, is the Messiah. Mark opened with that. This has got to be it. And yet right after Peter says, I get it. I get it now. You're the Christ. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, Peter, just calm down and be quiet about that. Why? Well, that's what we'll have to wait for for next week because we've got Mother's Day brunch to get to. But just to tilt my hand a little bit to foreshadow it, next Sunday... We'll see Peter, you can read ahead and you can see this, you can see that even though Peter rightly identifies him as the Christos, the Messiah, his understanding of what Messiah is, is so radically different from what God's understanding of Messiah is. So there's props to Peter here, and yet we'll see, he still doesn't get it. What Peter means when he says, you're the Messiah, is something very different than what God may, or Jesus means when he says, I am the Messiah. And that calls us back to that first question, doesn't it? Well, I believe in Jesus. Okay, that's good. When you define Jesus, is it the same way God defines him? I bet not. It's not for me. I'm learning. God is having to fix my sight on a day-to-day -day basis through relationships with you, through relationship with him, through study and learning in his word. He's gradually and slowly throughout our lives revealing to us what that Jesus really means. It makes you wonder about your concept of Jesus, doesn't it? What is there to flesh out? What is it that you hold true about Jesus, that's actually not true. What expectations do you have for him that he has never said he's interested in meeting? Also, what things has he promised that you've totally missed? What descriptions about you does he give that you still don't believe? Is the Jesus we believe in actually the Jesus of the Bible? Peter's ability to see is coming very gradually and faithfully as he ministers that life-changing gospel. As Jesus ministers the life-changing gospel to Peter, he starts to get it. You even see a moment in Peter's life after resurrection, after Jesus has departed. Peter is a church leader. He's a, a formidable church leader. And Paul will write in Galatians and he'll say, I had to get up and oppose that dude straight to his face in front of everybody because he had the gospel whack. What? Yeah. 
He was twisting the gospel and weaving false belief into it. Peter, the apostle, was living according to the wrong gospel and teaching the wrong gospel. And Paul had to say, you need to change your ways. And of course, Peter did. Maybe that was the moment that Peter was saved. <laughs> you see a trend here? Even, you know, Peter's in it, but he still had so much to learn and grow. Ellie and I totally changed our prayer after that second miscarriage. We had, we, had, we had to. There was no other option. We had learned something new. There was no more white knuckling. We were now on a path toward discovering just how much we were trying to combine Christianity with American idolatry. We had to actually start to get more serious about that. Our prayers began to change. Seeing came gradually, and guess what? It still is. Seeing Jesus comes gradually for most of us. We as a church can see one another much less as failing Christians and much more as learning Christians who fail along the way. This will help us, I think, to breathe a new courage into our body, a courage to be open with one another about where we're really at instead of pretending to be where we think we should be at. Courage to confess. Courage to ask for help. Courage to spend the time and the money that it takes to actually learn. I run into far too many well-meaning believers who somehow think learning the deep truths of God will happen somehow, someday. And we're not driven to really commit ourselves to lives of discipleship because we've got this weird idea that we, we've already seen the light. There's no more darkness, there's no more night. Now I'm so happy. There's no sorrow in sight. But I think we can shed some of that, that pretending. We can actually say, yeah, this is a slow growth process. It's not easy to learn about Jesus. It's hard to see him. If you're truly pursuing Jesus and working hard through the frustrating and the exhausting challenges of being a mother, he will be increasing your ability to see him every step of the way. You can take heart in that, moms. By the way God is patient with you, you can see a picture of how to be patient with your own children. By the way he's gracious and forgiving toward you, you can start to slowly see what grace and forgiveness looks like with your little ones that you're trying to raise. And of course, that's to grandmas and grandpas as well, and your grandchildren, and of course, that's to all of us. It's not just to moms or grandparents. It's to every single one of us. We can look and see the way that Jesus is healing us, and it's gradual, and it takes time. You will experience times where darkness is still there, and sorrow hits you, and confusion slaps you in the face like a freight train, and it won't shake you. Instead, you'll say, okay, what do I need to see now? What is God teaching me? What is my heart really clinging to more than Jesus? Am I looking to Jesus like one of these false gods, as somebody I just appease, and then he gets me what I really love? 
or am I actually learning to truly love him? It's easy to say that we love him. I think all of this applies to all of us. Far more than the ultimate goal of perfection, our daily calling in this world right now is to be patient. Yes, God is going to make us perfect. Yes, this day, this Mother's Day, He is weaving you through experiences that are sharpening you and growing you up so you will live eternally with Him in a kingdom where we will rule together. That notion is so crazy to me that I just go over it quickly because it's like I think that applies to other people, not me. And yet God says, I am refining you, I'm raising you up, I'm strengthening you. Each day counts, and everything that you do really, truly matters. Yes, ultimately, perfection will happen. But right now in this broken world, he calls us to patience, to perseverance, not giving up, and then to love. To actual, true love for one another and for him. We are all learning to see Jesus gradually, every single one of us. There is nobody who has seen the light in its completeness, in my view. I don't think that we have. I think all of us have blind spots and further healing that needs to happen. So let Jesus touch you again and again and again. And let him lead you each day, not just that one time where he led you on a new trajectory and now you just figure it out. No, each day. He leads us, he teaches us, and he restores our vision and pulls us out of this mainstream world. We're all learning to see Jesus gradually, and we need God's word, and we need one another to press on faithfully toward a faith that he's given us, and it's a faith that seeks understanding. Pray with me. Father, we read throughout the entire New Testament that that this thing, faith, is truly a gift you give to us. It's an amazing gift. I ask that through your spirit, you would help us to not think that once you've given us faith, now we've crossed the finish line. And help, instead, help us to see that as the starting line. Help us to see how life with you is a slow growth process out of blindness and into light. And we do see your light. We do. (laughs) It's beautiful. Jesus, it's awesome that you would come into this broken and dark world and be the light for us to chase after. But you know that sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to see that light. It grows faint and it flickers. So I ask that you would be patient with us. Continue to extend mercy to this body and to me as a pastor. Help us to continue to build one another up into your image and understand patiently that this miracle of faith and seeing you for who you really is is something that comes gradually. You are great and greatly to be praised, and we love you, and we trust you with our lives. Amen.